Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street. And this is the Lawyerist Podcast, Episode 2. The Lawyers Podcast is a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyers.com slash podcast. Today's interview with Minnesota lawyer Paul Floyd is about how to value and sell a law practice. And today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, also known as Call Ruby. We're big fans of Ruby, and if you sign up for a free 14-day trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. But in either case, you'll get 14 days free. Later in the podcast, we will tell you more about Ruby and why we think you should give it a try. And after Sam's interview with Paul Floyd, we'll be answering a question from our audience. And this week's question is whether new solos should offer flat fees from the beginning, and if so, how they should determine those fees. So I've known Paul Floyd for years. The reason I've wanted to have him on a podcast is that Paul has the kind of successful practice most solo and small firm lawyers want to have. So I'm excited to talk to him about valuing and selling law practices, but I also think he's got a lot of great advice for lawyers who want to build a successful practice. Today, I've got Paul Floyd with me, and we are going to talk about how to value a law practice. Uh, Paul is, I'm going to let him describe himself in a minute, but Paul is one of those lawyers who has a law practice that I think we should all envy. Um, He is successful um, without the uh, fancy bells and whistles of technology or unbundled services or crazy alternative billing scenarios. He just has a great law practice um, that makes him good money. And um, I guess maybe here, Paul, I should just sort of let you describe, give your own bio. Sure. I'm in a small firm, three people. My area is transactional work or working with businesses, primarily professionals, um, in large part lawyers who are transitioning either from a firm or into a firm or on their own, looking at the business and economic side of the law. So I really enjoy that. It's, I've been in four different firms myself at different sizes and different uh, configurations. My practice is business and, and law, so I'm trying to integrate the, t- the two, and I'm thinking all the time a business aspect to the legal side. So uh, one of the things I've always thought that you, you made me think about this is um, I think there's a real difference between a lawyer who starts their own practice after working for other lawyers at firms for years and one who just starts right out of law school are fairly close. Yeah, I usually try to think of lawyers when I'm talking to them on the phone or in in my own journey uh, about four different decades. The first decade is the first 10 years or seven years and one's practicing. And they're concerned, that lawyer, she's usually concerned or he's concerned about competence. Primarily, they want to make sure they can do the job. The second, though, the second decade and the third decade is when people generally put their head down. They kind of know what they're doing. They feel really confident. They actually have some clients. They're starting to 
develop a book or re- they have a practice area and they're really working hard. Then you've got the issue of, well, do I stay in the farm I'm in or doing what I'm doing or do I switch? And so I kind of divide these into four different decades. And the last one, of course, is what do you do the last 10 years of your practice? And, and lawyers fit into different categories and at various times, You've got concerns about competence. You've got concerns about client development. You've got, clients, you've got concerns about compensation. So all of those factors get played into whether somebody decides to sell a practice, join a practice, actually buy in, not buy in, become an employee. All the iterations that happen in the practice, I think, goes about, in large part, where are you in this, this journey of your, of your career, in-house, outside, uh, law-related, non-law-related. And, and going into the future, I think more lawyers are going to find themselves morphing from one to another and feeling more comfortable in that, in that role. And I suppose buying and selling law practices might play a role there. What, oh, for when, sure. when should someone, I guess there's two sides this, when should somebody be considering buying a practice and when should someone be considering selling a practice? I mean, I, I sold a practice, but I think I sold a practice that's a pretty non-traditional one for selling. I think you have to look at the law practice that you're talking about, either buying in or selling, and ask yourself, what are the components, business components that make it up? Most of us provide a service. But if we provide a service in the context of a system, like collection work, or if you have uh, workers' comp, or if you're doing bankruptcy, probate is another one. Uh, You've got a system set up whereby the paralegal or assistants or people around you, as well as a lawyer, are able to provide some, I would call it, uh, almost a machine that can be sold. And that system or that mechanical way of doing things actually has value because it can be done fungibly. You know, lawyers can come in and go out. Who's owning that system is less important than the person at the front or the face of that system. So it's like well, the, the, your client acquisition and your client service system yeah. or model, your procedures, your forms, your website, all that All stuff. of those things. Yeah. yeah, it's rather fungible as to which lawyer is actually doing that. But when you move into the law practices where the person, and it doesn't necessarily mean their name and the title, but the person is the one providing the services, then you have an issue of valuation. Because if that person wants to die, how can you replicate the uniqueness of that person? And the more unique that person is, Yes, the nice thing is they generate real revenue and good revenue because of the reputation. They'll get tons of calls. This could be criminal defense, PI, business corp. It doesn't matter what area. Once you get your name out there and you're on a short list, you can generate business and you know you have a pretty good stream of income. And you're competent and now money's coming in. The problem is the moment you become disabled or die or retire or you're no longer providing those services, then the question is, why would I buy that if I can't get the same, if I'm not guaranteed that stream of income? And, of course, we're now... Like the, I mean, the phone number may be still worth something, but the, for, for only a period for, of time. They're, they're looking for Steve or Mary, and, they, and the problem is Steve or Mary is no longer there. <laughs> right. Now, in today's world, we can kind of uh, be able to work to keep that flowing in a way historically was much harder. 
um, on a web page, you can have a video of a person that says, you know, I'm no longer practicing, I retired, or I moved on, I'm in-house counsel, and I really want to recommend Mary. She's great. I've worked with her for three years. She's buying my practice. Trust me, trust her. If you have any questions, call me. I'll help you get it done. That kind of warm handoff, so to speak, is done through a video on a web page that historically was impossible. Or and, I, I suppose you could do that with you know a more traditional book of business where you say, you tell your existing clients, uh, "Here's who's taken over my practice." And exactly, yeah. And the key, the key to that is that it needs to be done two or three or four years before you walk out the door. And most people think, "Well, I'm going to be done in about a year. Now I need to to pass the baton." You should have been, and you need to be working on those connections, inter- in introducing your partner, future owner, um, associate becoming partner to your clients. Now, there's a downside in the practice of law, and it's, it's the, I would say, underbelly of every law firm, and that is we have non-competes, and we don't allow them for lawyers. If you're a dentist, a doctor, a chiropractor, architect, it's easy. Once you develop your practice, you can bar your people from stealing your clients. You can't do that as a lawyer. You have no non-competes. So they literally, your junior person or your partner, can open up a shop in the same building, in the same floor, unless you get some protection on your landlord lease. Um, They could literally go across the street, open up, and take your clients because they can send a letter out to the clients that goes, no, they have to be careful. You can have non-solicit, meaning you can't solicit the customers, but they can service them. So they can do general notices that go out, They can, and you cannot stop them from competing. So with that in mind, it undercuts the value of law firms. Dentist practices are very highly regarded because people go back twice a year to get their teeth cleaned or whatever to see a dentist. Right. And they're non-competes. You can force your dentist not to be able to open in a 15-mile radius. But lawyers, less so. And it undercuts the value of the practice. So how do we get over that? What do, what do I recommend clients do? Because we're not going to change the non-compete, the no-non-compete world we're in. Um, I think the thing to do is to think of cooperation and work that associate or junior partner in early and make it worth their while not to leave. See, the problem is we generally on the way out become, this is a a little bit overboard, but become a little stingy. We see ourselves leaving, so we we are aggressive. We're lawyers by nature. We tend to be aggressive. So we're a little over-aggressive, and the junior person goes, okay, I'll, I'll put up with this for about a year, and once I get to know all the context, then I'm out the door. Instead of saying, okay, how can I over the next three years or five years make it worth both of our while? There is an inertia. Having to open a law firm, I know it doesn't cost much, but there's still an inertia to do so. It's still many people, I believe, trust loyalty. They like loyalty so long as they believe it's fair. So if you get a good person working with you, I think by and large they'll stay in the firm if you make it worth their while and they make it worth your while. So you so you think the uh, higher your uh, your the person you're trying to sell your firm to is the best model then? Yes, I do. I think if you're trying to sell to a brand new person coming in, the downside is there's less loyalty, and they're also not quite sure they can do it. And more importantly, they can open up a shop across the street, or they can simply halfway through say, "I'm out of here. I'm not going to be buying your business." Well, and I suppose if it's if you're if you're advocating for a two to four year 
turnaround time. I mean, if the deal is going to last two to four years, then I suppose it would be pretty inconvenient if it weren't somebody who you were going to have that kind of a long-term relationship with. And I think I think six months into it to a year into it, you'll know. You'll know whether it's working or not and whether this is the right person and whether you can trust that person or not. Generally speaking, if your gut tells you it's not working out, stop now and move on because you're still in the position of having the client relationships so that you can keep the client. One of the things that's happening, I've seen this over and over, is junior attorneys jumping ship calling up the clients. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't the API, but this is in corporate clients or larger uh, or, or insurance companies or more sophisticated clients calling the client and saying, oh, well, I just opened my shop. I was doing the work over at such and such a firm. I have my new firm. And what happens is the old firm picks the phone up and calls the client or the client calls the old firm and they say, yeah, he left and, you know, it's, yeah, he's opened his new shop, but we'd like to continue the business. I've seen more and more juniors underestimate the fact that long-term relationships with those corporate clients or institutional or whatever, cities, um, referral sources, they're not so easily broken as long as the law firm or the senior partner is gives an image and an appearance. I'll be around for a while. It doesn't have to be forever. That's why I'm suggesting a two, four, six-year kind of phase. Could you, And sometimes I'm working with clients now with a junior person, five, five, and five. First five years, a small percentage of ownership, small percentage of investment, a big, big in time investment, but still just really an associate junior partner. Second five years, 50-50 or 51-49. Last five years, senior guys retired and, and getting a paycheck based on accounts receivable. So that model can work, but it takes some forward thinking. Yeah. So what So what about, um, well, let's, let's cut to the, the meat of it here. I mean, how do you... How do you put a value on your your practice today? I mean, may, maybe you're doing it with a view towards a long term transition, but how do you decide what it's worth? Historically, people have thought in the area of businesses. You look at the last year's revenue, or an average of the last three years' revenue. Let's say it's six hundred thousand or three hundred thousand. Doesn't matter the number, and then you would do a multiple of that one, two, three times. The downside of that is without a non compete and being so uniquely involved to the lawyer, tied to the lawyer, most accountants or financial advisors who are appraisers who are looking at law firms say, ooh, we can't do even one or two or three. So about 0.5 is usually what you can oh, hope really? for. Yeah, it's so low. That's why, that's why the lawyer needs to earlier on get involved in making that transition so they get the equity out of the firm while they're still there. Most lawyers take equity out of the firm every year by way of uh, compensation. There is no retained earnings. There is no big pot at the end of the... And so if that's true, then you just need to stretch it out a little bit further, another three years. Um, I suppose that that also obviates the the non-compete problem, right? If you're you're essentially not competing because you're (laughs) handing it off as you go. As long as you keep those relationships with the clients and the clients see you as at least a part of the equation, then if the junior person or the other person jumps ship, you can always at least be able to argue, listen, I've got a long-term track record, I'm loyal, I'm competent, I do a good job, please keep the work here and then find another person to transition. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's unique because without a non-compete, uh, it, it does undercut the viability and, and, and value of the firm, 
Also, though, we're tied to the uniqueness of a lawyer. So uh, the more that the business stream of income is tied to my name or my reputation, that if I'm not involved, the person buying goes, well, wait a minute, that business has to go someplace. And oh, by the way, why am I guaranteed it's going to come to me? They like Terry a lot. They don't necessarily like me. They do, but but am I going to be able to compete? Because and that's a, that the, that fear, that wonder, that that anxiety drives down the price, um, and therefore I think more often you're looking for internal uh, people. Now there's another way to sell a practice, and this one is one that I'm looking at more and more. Uh, to look at a larger firm and say, okay, if I came to your firm and took enough counsel status, and I transitioned my book. I spent the next two years really working, not on the legal work, but on getting my book over to your junior people. What would you pay me for that? Hmm. And, and because in a solo or small firm, there may be no one else in your firm who can actually do that. I mean, actually pick up your practice and run with it. You may need a peer, someone who is just maybe two years younger. And your smaller firm, you probably don't have that kind of variety three years out, five years out, seven years out, 15, whatever. So... I'm looking at the possibility of cooperating or connecting or becoming of counsel, and the job of the seller to get the value out of the practice is to transition the, so the new firm picks it up, and you say to them, okay, the proof is in the pudding. Let's just see what comes in. I'll get third. I'll get half of every dollar generated, whether I do the work or not, and my job is to make sure you guys pick up the business to the extent I can, and most Firms are okay with that because it's a stream of business, and three to five years, that person's completely retired. It sounds so like the. It sounds to me like the best way to value a firm is actually not to value it, and instead to um, work on a, a revenue share or, or model or something like that. Exactly. So here's the way I help my clients. I say, stop. Think of the last three years. What was your average revenue over the last three years? Let's say three hundred. That's not bad. Okay, three hundred thousand dollars came in. What was your overhead? The overhead was, uh, let's say, fifty thousand. Okay, so or a hundred. So okay, you got two hundred in your pocket and a hundred overhead. That's a lot for a small firm, but be it as it may. Okay, two hundred. That's your net. Okay, now what? What's the revenue going to be in the next year and the year after? Next three years, uh, if you're not actively involved, a hundred percent. And they can give you numbers. They'll go, well, it's going to be probably 75, down to 50, down to 25. All right, add that number up, all right? And then ask yourself, if you're involved in the firm, how much for three more years, could you do 300, 300, 300, or would you see yourself be dropping? Yeah, probably be dropping a little, uh, but, but most people are doing pretty well, So, particularly in today's market. So I looked at the past three years, and then I projected into the next three years, and I say to myself, okay, probably one-third each year, you're probably going to be lucky if you can get somebody to buy that law firm for probably $150,000. Why? Because it's probably going to be 50-50-50 over the next three years, and they're going to have to work the tail off. You're not working. So um, the value, it's not as much as people think. I think, though, there is something there. But that's and real that's, value. I mean, there's... Oh, yes. That, yeah. No, some firms are, you know, if you've got a machine or you've got a system and it generates real revenue, or if you have real accounts receivable, I know a subrogation firm that has real accounts receivable. They generate a million dollars of real accounts receivable every year that are going into the future. Mm -hmm. So if they shut the firm down today, they'd receive a million bucks. Well, that's something you buy into. In the old days, you'd have a real buy-in. Today, you'd buy in. That's more like buying a, uh, 
you know, paper in a collection. Uh, yeah, you're buying something. a business, an ongoing business that's not tied to a person. It's really a system and a reputation of a, a system, a business. Um, and that's why in the business world you'll hear people like Susskind saying that non-lawyers want to invest in certain types of law firms. Mm -hmm. Of course you'd want to invest in that firm because, wow, that firm generates revenue, whether they're lawyers, who, no matter which the lawyer is. But in America, most of the law firms and lawyers, and most of us, have our individual reputation, and we get business based on relationships, not based on a system. And if you're based on relationships, I think the thing to do is to think early, to think who's the key people that I might pass my relationships on to, and then how can I leverage that so we win-win? Both of us feel like we're getting treated fairly. Because if you died or had a heart attack or had a stroke, your estate wouldn't get much, and you, you wouldn't get much because you're, you're not generating revenue. So um, if you don't have that ongoing relationship possibility, it's less, you have less leverage, and therefore the value of your practice is worthless. How much uh, how much of a difference do you think it makes the the type of firm, say a PI firm that's always having to bring in new business versus um, a small business firm that is has um, at least a core of repeat business that keeps coming back year after year? Okay, I stop and I think I ask myself, where is the referral source coming from? Where is the client coming from? In the PI business, it generally comes from the use of a phone number website, um, advertising in some form or fashion. It's not necessarily coming because a lawyer referred it or a corporate uh, general counselor or C-level person referred it in. It's usually coming through advertising. So if you're doing web, any type of advertising, to get most of your clients in the door, and they're, are, they're looking at you not because it's Paul Floyd, but because it's personal injury lawyers or whatever it is, then you've got to you stop and you say to yourself, okay, that's a different story than Paul Floyd getting the business through relationships. So, so in a way, that uh, see, I've always thought that like a PI firm where you're constantly turning over clients may actually be worth less. But it sounds like because advertising be is easy, yeah, advertising is easier to hand why. over. Here's why, Sam, because the cost of running a law firm and the cost of maintaining the advertising systems we're in are dropping to such a degree, places where people get their referral sources. You don't need to drop a hundred grand anymore on the yellow pages. So you can take that hundred thousand dollars and you can say to yourself, how can I better use that? And here's the second part. You don't necessarily need to have all the office space you used to have to have. You mm -hmm. don't necessarily have overhead is dropping and we're finding the way the law is being practiced today is cheaper and cheaper. If the overhead drops, then the net revenue in your pocket will be greater, assuming um, assuming your, 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 revenue, your generation of revenue is the same. I think the systems that PI lawyers have to generate revenue generally works. The biggest issue in that world, it works the same with workers' comp and same with class actions. You've got to kind of get through the weeds to figure out what are good cases and what are bad cases. But that's just processing the cases through and looking at them and deciding what are cases going to settle, which cases are going to be costly. But and lawyers are good at that. They can make that analysis. Um, they, can, they know it's cream. They know it's the, uh, the meat. And they know it's going to be an unlikely uh, case that they're not going to take. So I'm less worried about all of that. The old systems work well. The overhead, I think, is going to be dropping. I, then the question comes, okay, can the system we have generate real revenue going into the future? And 
in the PI world, in the world where you have systems in place, and it's not tied to Paul Floyd, but it's tied to personal injury lawyers or whatever it is, um, you're going to find, I think, more value over the long haul because people are going to begin to associate, okay, they provide legal services and they do an okay job for whatever reason, and I'm going to use them. So there is an ongoing stream of income independent of who's doing it. It's the, uh, it's the consistent expectation no matter who owns the firm. And I think in the area of dentists, for example, in, in Twin Cities, which is a nice metropolitan area, we have well-known large clinic systems where people know, okay, I don't really care who my dentist is, I just go to this dental place. And there are like 50 of them, and they're all in those neighborhoods. And people are getting used to going to or visiting or communicating with local little neighborhood kind of clinics. And that's so easy in the PI world. You can have 20 of them in the Twin Cities, mm -hmm. and you just have a front or you just have a web page that mentions them. So, you know, mentions we have a site, and maybe you go out on Tuesdays only, you're there. So I'm finding that l lawyers are starting to be able to have, I think, more systems and networks in place to provide services to customers on a cost-effective basis than what they used to be able to do. Bricks and mortars less important. You can do leases that come. You can do leases now for a day or an hour. So you don't need to do a month by month, or you don't need to do even a, a you know year to year. You can do, you can uh, rent space by that day at so many places. Then and so I think the practice in some ways is getting easier and easier. Um, relationships still matter to most of us, and so the practice is still tied to valuing what that is and passing that on, kind of like a baton. You know, uh, you've talked a lot about systems, which makes a ton of sense, which makes me wonder uh, at what point someone should start to prepare their law practice to eventually sell it or, or transition it to a new owner, because systems are the kind of thing you probably ought to be developing all the way through, although many lawyers probably don't. So, I mean, it's, when should a lawyer start thinking about this? Yeah, I think in today's world, I think you need to be thinking from the moment you start practicing or from now forward. And the reason, even if, let's say you do uh, states and trusts and wills, okay, and you're going to end up hopefully over the next 15 years or 20 years of your practice generating eh, 2,000 to 3,000, maybe 4,000 wills, trusts and estate planning kind of things. Okay. Um, what are you going to do with the files? How, your business, that business, those businesses are valuable. Not hugely, but they can generate 150 to 100,000. Uh, 3,000 3, files that are closed can generate between 50 and 100,000. Why? A year. Because people wake up and go, well, we need to have that codicil done, or my mom died. Can you read this trust or this will? Or we need this revised. It's kind of like dentists. They, they, they come back. Now, that, that leads me to systems. If you don't have systems in place and you just have a, a room someplace with files and they're all over, in the old days, that's what we did. And I you believe. never contact them again. And yeah, well, you, and you can't get access to them very easily. They're in storage someplace, but you know you got it. You just don't know where. And this is the case with small firms. I'm in a small firm. I've been in small firms the last 20 years. Systems are hard yeah. because they take time. They take me away from the client and they don't generate revenue. So I'm sitting there going, okay, I've got, I, we had a room full of files. And I said, you know, I'm, my problem problem is when we finally dissolve the firm, I'm going to have to take half these files home or destroy them. Or... So what I did is I paid a college student to come in and scan them, OCR them. That doesn't just scan. That means scan slowly all of the files, everything. Why did I do that? Because now if a client calls me, I just go on my computer. I just type in their name. I get their file. And, and how, did we, how did we scan them? We scanned them by day. 
we didn't and, and by file number, but but not by names. There isn't much of the system allows searching through the program to do that. So yeah. I'm just suggesting whatever law firm you're doing, part of the value is being able to access that information later quickly. And in today's world, that's more potentially there, but most of us don't have time. So we need to build into our system, our, our law firms, some way. So I paid this clerk for like six weeks. She came in. She did a great job. And at the end today, I've been so thankful over and over, be able to find quickly documents I wanted or client matters that I wanted. Um, and most of the documents, I, I contacted the clients and, and were able to shred them and get rid of them. Mm -hmm. So we reduced our size. That's what's happening in law firms. They're reducing the rental size, the storage size, um, and, and I think we're also, though, on the other side, increasing our our, our relationships with our clients. Contact. Well, if you um, can do, yeah, if you can reduce your overhead in a substantial way and maintain the size of your business, then that's all profits. And exactly correct. And if you can draw it out now, because that revenue is coming in right now, then you're, sh you're sure it's going to happen. If you have systems in place and it's got some residual value, I find I'm a corporate lawyer, so I find it is two parts. One is the documents are helpful for younger lawyers, and two, the relationship. So I'm finding myself, uh, I keep the relationship with the client, but I have David go out and, and we meet together. David and Paul go and meet the client. And I say, you know, David's focused a little bit on real estate, so he'll be handling the real estate matters all over him. So I've got the contact, so David leaves, I can keep the client, but David's actually developing, and I'll start telling the client, why don't you call David? Mm -hmm. Why? Because he's in my firm and we're sharing revenue. So, uh, or, And you don't have to be in the same firm. You can do this through affiliations, through associations. Look at economic ways to do it rather than believing you have to make them all a partner in your firm or somehow. Some people don't want to be partners. They would The politics, put it aside. I just want to make money, enjoy my practice, and I'm happy to, to give up all of that political stuff. So right. you got to be looking so you at can, You can associate in, in the informal sense of that term where you have yes. a co-counsel agreement basically and a fee share or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Think business. Don't think law and protection and adversary. Think cooperation. How can we not burn bridges? How can we together win-win so both of us are working on a project and we're both making money? I think historically I've always kind of felt as a lawyer I need to make the money and I'll, I'll parse it down, so to speak, or send it downstream a little bit to the extent I need it. Instead of realizing that the junior person I needed all along to be able to ultimately uh, sell my firm to or, or you know, handle my firm. My family's not going to inherit my firm. They could care less. And my business partner, who's my same age, he's not going to inherit my firm. We're joking about who the first guy out is because <laughs> the second guy closes the firm down. So, you know, it's, it's that thoughtful thinking about, okay, I'm probably five. Myself, I'm probably 10 years away. What am I thinking in terms of retirement? What am I thinking about that transition? And today it's easier and waiting till the last minute is hard. The other, let me also say one thing, it's very true. For some lawyers, just shutting down the firm and having someone take over their practice and handling it competently is worth a lot, and they'll give their practice away. Well, I had I've, a guy, seen, I've seen people do that again and again. And, uh, and it's not necessarily wrong. I had a guy who had a heart valve problem, 54 years old, retired from the practice, thought he would never do it. He office shared with me. And he came in one day and said, hey, I'm out of here. The doctor said, my heart's bad. I'm going to New Mexico. Uh, I'm done. Would you, would you follow up and make sure that these wills and trusts and these other matters are handled? And would you simply shut down my law firm? And I said to him, 
Yeah. And I kept thinking, are you going to ask for something? And he said, if you just do it and the phone call rings and I don't have to handle it and I can go off and, and, and live my life, Paul, that is well worth it. And I said to myself, there's probably more than half of the lawyers in America who feel that way, and rightfully so, because he realizes he doesn't want to get involved in nickel and diamond, and also... He, does, he wants to be completely finished, and there isn't a lot of value. It's not like he's giving up a ton. Uh, and the nuisance and the headache and the worries that he, he'd have, uh, and, and what I find sometimes is, you know, you sign a promissory note with a junior partner, and they get in hard times, and then you renegotiate the note because you don't want your practice back. So a lot of these transitional things don't really work out very well because you don't have the leverage to either get the client back, practice law again, or get the practice of law back. And so you renegotiate the note again with the, with the new buyer and renegotiate again. And the reality is at some point you're just done. And uh, I think it's better to be thinking three, five, six years, ten years in advance going, okay, how do I transition that? And that's where I come in. That's the kind of thing, thinking I do and that's the kind of clients who I like. And that's what I do. I mean, I'm thinking right. that way right now. 59, well, I'm, is I'm is thinking, selling okay, your firm part year. of your retirement plan? Because that's what it sounds like you know, for a lot of lawyers, selling the firm is a boost yes. to their retirement. Yes, um, but I'm because of the amount that we generate in revenue. It's usually about three, three, three hundred to three fifty per lawyer. We got three lawyers. It isn't a ton of money, so I'm saying to myself, if I'm lucky, if I if I can sell my practice and if I can get maybe one hundred and fifty, one hundred and fifty, so a total of two hundred thousand dollars out of my practice, I'd be very happy. Hmm. See how I was doing it? I did 300 a year. If the next year we're able to generate 300 off that book and I got 150, 50%, I'd be happy. The next year, if I only got 75, I'd be happy. And if the last year I got 25, I'd be happy. I'd be happy with, you know, basically uh, approximately 200,000 out of a 300 book. Why? Because I got to make sure that person, uh, they'll be drop off. But, but also, I want the person to want to pick up my book and run with it and mm-hmm. make it worth my while. Other than competing, because once he gets to know my book, he can open a shop across the street and and uh, and take the clients. So uh, takeaways are: if you're thinking about selling your firm, uh, plan now, starting now. Yes. Um, and consider that there are a lot of advantages to a um, having hiring your your replacement and uh, training them up and and probably locking them into a contract to buy early so that they know that that's the plan and they don't just take your business and go across the street. And if that's not working, terminate the relationship earlier rather than later because you'll know within the first year. And then finally, if your practice is relationship-based, consider an of-counsel arrangement with another firm where they could do multiple levels of service to your clients, senior, middle, junior, associate, and you can then spend a couple years transitioning your practice so that you're able to get some value out of it, but you're not doing all the work. That model also is a viable one if relationships are key and the clients are, are valuable. And it sounds like the only situation where um, just straight up, here's what my firm is worth, somebody writes you a check and you walk out the door one day and they walk in the door the next day is something like um, maybe a PI firm where their client acquisition model is primarily based off advertising and a phone number and you could just walk in and do the work. Yes, and uh, true. And what I see for the value of that normally is not a paycheck at the closing, but an agreement that says, okay, over the next one to three years, 
revenue generated out of the system, whatever it is, phone mm-hmm. numbers, yellow pages, web, website, the revenue, that net revenue, after overhead, reasonable overhead, the net revenue is split between us a certain formula. So usually a little more first year, a little less second year, and then last year the, the least. That's the way, because most buyers, even buying systems, say, you know, I don't want to pay for something up front that I may never get. And so it's kind of some skin in the game. Both sides have a well, little skin. And, and if you're not willing to buy a contingent fee practice on a contingency, then maybe yeah, it's the wrong yeah, thing well, for it's you. Something. <laughs> yeah, and both parties have an incentive to make sure the transition actually works. Uh, so, uh, And there's something there. So uh, that's, that's basically I, the most successful way I'm seeing people transition their practices, those three ways. Oh, very interesting. So, uh, thanks, Paul. I really appreciate you having this chat with me. It's my pleasure. Uh, Have a nice day. You too. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. This episode of The Lawyer's Podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years, and I regularly got compliments from callers, clients, potential clients, opposing counsel, about the great receptionists from Ruby. Um, But I also loved being a Ruby customer because of the way they treated me. So quick story about why that is. When my first daughter was born, um, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone and I updated my status saying, hold my calls for 48 hours. Um, And I said that I was in the hospital giving birth to my daughter. My wife was giving birth to my daughter. Um, And um, I didn't think anything more of it. They held my calls. It all went smoothly. And when I got back to my office a few days later, there was a beautiful little care package waiting for me from Ruby. Um, Whoever had fielded that status update saw that I was in the hospital um, for the birth of my daughter, and they sent, you know, a rattle and a onesie and and a a bib and a couple, some really nice things. It wasn't Ruby branded. It was just a really nice care package for the baby. And it was this really touching thing. And it was so touching that I'm still telling people about it years later. Um, Ruby still answers the phones for lawyerists. And I have to say that we've gotten great service from them throughout this time. I, I don't get care packages anymore, obviously, because I'm not having kids anymore. But it's just been a wonderful experience. So I think you should give it a try. And since Ruby will answer your phones for free for 14 days during the trial period, you've really got nothing to lose. So uh, I think you should go get started. And you can do that by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist. And if you do, Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. Hey, this is Aaron. At the end of each podcast episode, we do an Ask Lawyerist section uh, where we'll take your questions that you can submit either through email at email at lawyerist.com or on Twitter at hashtag AskLawyerist. And feel free to submit any law practice related questions you have, and we will try to answer the good ones in a future podcast episode. So this podcast is airing before we've actually, or we're recording it before we've actually aired the first episode, so you haven't had a chance to ask us any questions yet. So we're pulling a question from the Q&A section of Lawyerist. Uh, And so this question is, how do you calculate flat fees when you first start out as a solo or small firm lawyer? What do you think, Sam? Uh, I think the preliminary question is, should you be doing flat fees at all, right? Indeed. I mean, it's... uh 
Flat fees are great. They're totally the thing of the moment for lawyers, which happens. We have things of the moment, I guess. And um, and they can be good, but they're not always the right approach to, uh, to billing. I, I like to think of flat fees as another tool in the lawyer's toolkit. Um, on the one hand, it's a terrible idea to treat everything like it should be billed by the hour, uh, but it's also a terrible idea to treat everything like it should be billed on a flat fee. So And so as someone, if someone is thinking about this, are the main f- dynamics they should be considering them and th- their experience, who their clients are, what practice area they're in, which, which, which types of lawyers, clients, or practice areas are or aren't a good fit? I guess all of the above, but I think the, the thing to look at is, if it's the kind of thing where you can perform it once um, and then you come up with the document, for example, that you can reuse with very little effort again and again and again, that should be a flat fee. Um, it's the kind of thing where uh, when I was a, uh, an, a young associate, um, I was told to bill for the value of some things. So, for example, if I was drafting an answer, I was told to bill for the value of the answer, not the 10 minutes it actually took me to draft it. So they told me to spend an hour, hour and a half on it as far as the books were concerned. Um, That's the kind of thing where you should probably not be billing by the hour. You should probably just do it as a flat fee um, because you can draft it once and you can reuse it again and again and again. And that's a really good candidate for a flat fee because there's no sense in trying to I mean, you can't bill by the you can't bill for an hour if you don't actually spend an hour on it. That's a violation of what the hourly fee even means. Indeed. So, uh, so I would look for. I think flat fees are best suited to those things where you can spend eighty hours drafting the perfect answer and then reuse it again and again, or the perfect NDA, or the perfect whatever incorporation agreement or member control agreement or whatever you want. So that that's where I think it really makes sense to do it. But you and I both know family law attorneys who have figured out ways to incorporate flat fees into their practice. I'm assuming you would agree that that's something you should only consider after you've practiced for a while and really know the dynamics, both financial and client service related of your practice. Well, yeah. I mean, pe- people love to say that you can't bill flat fees in litigation, which is not true. You you absolutely can bill flat fees in litigation, and you can do it in a way that probably makes you better money than billing hourly. The trick is to know your practice area really, really well. Because the more family law, the more divorces you handle, the more you realize how similar each one is to the next one. I've never been a family law lawyer, so I'm just assuming that that's the case. But it was absolutely true for me in debt collection defense. You know, it it didn't take very long to realize that every single case was the same and I could bill flat fees for them and I could come out ahead on most case on 99% of my cases. So part of the trick is knowing it really well. Yeah, you shouldn't you absolutely should not just come right out of the gate and randomly select a number and start billing flat fees because you're probably going to. You're either going to screw yourself or your client. If you screw yourself, that sucks for you. If you screw your client, that really sucks for you. So, And in a case like that, do you also build some sort of out for the outlier case that ends up taking way more than could possibly make you money? You can. I think it depends on the case and how much it's worth and just how badly it could go. Um, you know, you can, you can compare it to, say, change orders in construction. 
Um, nobody would expect that if you all of a sudden your house is on an Indian burial ground that you can't have a change order to change the, the price of the construction. Um, so yeah, there can be unforeseen circumstances and you can write that into your retainer agreement. Um, I didn't. Um, I just decided that was a risk that I was willing to bear. Um, and I think I had one case blow up on me in set six or seven years of handling debt collection defense cases. So um, in my experience, it wasn't a big deal. But, you know, if you're trying to do it on fairly expensive big litigation cases, which mine weren't, um, then, yeah, you might have sort of a um, you might want to track your hours and say if it goes beyond this amount, um, then we're going to renegotiate the flat fee. Um, there's a couple different ways to handle that, but I think you can absolutely have sort of a, rel a relief valve. Okay, so going back to the original core question, what model should someone starting out use to calculate the actual rate of their flat fees? Um, it may be counterintuitive since we're talking about flat fees, which are usually cast in opposition to hourly fees, but I think you should start in reference to your time. Um, you know, the, the value of an answer does have some relevance to the amount of time you put in to draft it. And so I think you can start with reference to your time. Now, if it's something that you can do again and again with very little effort down the road, you should probably not charge the same as it took you to do it the first time. That's the whole point of our of flat fees is that you can do better than hourly fees and still come out ahead. Um, so you should cut that down to what seems to be a reasonable rate that is competitive, very competitive against what other people might be charging. But I think I think you have to start you know, by looking at your hours and just see how it goes. Um, but the important thing is, even if you start with reference to your hours, you have to stop thinking about it in terms of hours. Um, because your goal should be to be way more efficient when you're doing it on a flat fee than you would be on an hourly fee. And so you have to get hours out of your head in order to keep going forward. So you start with hours and then you forget about hours. So if someone is just starting out, does that mean your advice is that they shouldn't start out offering flat fees or that they should and they should just keep adjusting them for the first 10 clients? I think it's pretty hard to do it when you have no reference point. Um, it is hard to, it's just hard to do it at all when you start out though because it's taking you two or three times as long to do everything. Um, so it's just hard to do it. If you're just starting out, um, charging flat fees is difficult. Um, but it depends on the practice area. Like in bankruptcy, there's only so much you can charge and the flat fees are pretty well established. Um, in in business law, you could probably have coffee with 10 people and get a pretty good idea of what you ought to be charging um, as a flat fee. So sometimes the flat fees are sort of set for you um, if you're in your practice area. But if you're trying to break new ground, I think it's worth not doing flat fees until you really know what it ought to cost and then going ahead and trying out flat fees. Now, I didn't do it that way. I just sort of guessed, and it ended up working out really well. Um, but that was kind of dumb luck on my part. So you can, Did I guess you have you can to change that. it very many times? I don't think I, well, um, I think I, 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 I did eventually change it. I raised my fee a little bit. Um, Basically, I, I put a floor on my fee. I said I wouldn't take cases below this uh, this flat fee. So you had to pay me at least X in order for me to handle your case. 
Um, and eventually I think I increased, I would set my fee based on a percentage of the debt that they were um, alleged to owe. Um, and I think I raised that at some point, but I, I actually didn't make much changes. It wound up being about right. So my dumb luck worked out for me. There so, you go. But it was actually, I guess it wasn't entirely dumb luck. I was basing it on the model of another attorney who had done it out in California. So I had some data to go on at least. So I think I think referencing time and talking to other lawyers and finding out what a typical fee might be are the ways to start out and then just test and change it if you need to. And maybe don't start with the assumption that you have to offer flat fees. Exactly. Don't assume that that's the only way to do it. It's not. It, and it's not always the best way to do it. All right. There's our answer for this week. If you have a question for a future episode, you can email us at email at lawyerist.com or find us on Twitter with hashtag AskLawyerist. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.